Last week we began an attempt to try to provide a scriptural filter for evaluating some of the questions that come up connected to the terrorist attack on our country, September 11, 2001. (coughs) Some right away then, and others have continued since then um, to suggest that uh, 9-11 was the result of multiple um, high-handed and repeated sins, and God's lifting a veil of protection, as one described it. The fact is that the Bible does make it clear that God has judged whole nations on account of their sin. Last week, we turned our attention to the book of Amos, and we saw the prophet's announcement that that northern kingdom of Israel was ripe for judgment, and his declaration that when the evil came upon their capital city of Samaria, that they should there should be no mistake that that evil was none other than the judgment hand of God upon them. This week I've been reading in the book of Ezekiel as part of my own devotional time and the warning that God was about to send judgment upon that southern kingdom of Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, Just one day, a couple days ago, chapter 22, just taking note of the offenses that God said of that... uh, land that made it right for judgment. One was bloody violence. I, I don't watch much uh, TV news, but I do check internet news, and it's just every other, if that uh, story is about bloody violence in our streets. Contempt for fathers and mothers, <laughs> Ezekiel 22. One of the reasons why the land was right for judgment. Various forms <laughs> of adultery and fornication that I don't even want to begin uh, to communicate about, bribery, extortion, other forms of unjust financial gain, complete disregard for the Sabbath, prophets that gave a whitewashed message of peace that was a lie. Uh, These are the things that that, uh, God cited against the nation. And the people became so conformed to the paganism that was around him that he actually says, you offer your children in sacrifice to idols. And you don't even want to hardly get your mind around that. But it is what was taking place. They're offering their own children in the fire to pagan deities. And then he said this, and the same day you come into my temple... Uh, they would go up into the temple of Jehovah God right after offering their kids to pagan deities as if you could just tip your hat to him and appease him. And one of the statements declaring God's response to all of this, and you don't need to turn there, but just listen. And I I just want to remind you that this isn't me. (laughs) This is God and his response to the kinds of things that in many cases are taking place in our own country. He said, as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath. I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and ye shall be melted in the midst of it. I think many of us have probably forgotten that statements like that are even in the Bible. (laughs) 
and yet they go on at great length. That you really can't read your whole Bible without coming to the conclusion that God does judge nations for their sin. And it's not just the nation of Israel, the one that had a special relationship with him that he judged. In the major prophetical books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those three in particular, there are extended sections that pronounce judgment, not just on God's own sinful people, but on all the nations surrounding Israel for their own sins. So I'd say again, and where we were last week, God does judge nations for sins. But with that truth underscored, I wonder if you're prepared to embrace uh, the explanation that a man named William Koenig uh, has given for a number of our national disasters. Koenig has written a book entitled Eye to Eye, Facing the Consequences of Dividing Israel, is the subtitle. And he said in an interview about that book, and I'm quoting, when we put pressure on Israel to divide their land, we have enormous record-setting events, often within 24 hours. Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, and so on. We have experienced over 90 record-setting all-time events as we have acted against Israel. And the greater the pressure we put on Israel to quote-unquote cooperate, the greater the catastrophe. He's written an entire book that is attempting to delineate these connections between actions toward Israel and national disaster in America. Uh, we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of what has been called the perfect storm. Uh, you, can, you can go and read about it. You can watch some video reports about it. It's when a cold nor'easter, as they describe them, started off in Nova Scotia, ended up joining with Hurricane Grace and formed 100-foot waves uh, that pounded New England. And here's some commentary of that event. That record-setting storm devastated New England as President George H.W. Uh, Bush co-sponsored the Madrid Conference October 30th to November 1st, 1991. At the conference... Bush broke from President Reagan's more pro-Israel policies in an attempt to form an Arab-Israeli peace plan that included recognizing a Palestinian right to biblically Jewish lands. While Bush was in Spain advocating a division in Israel, the storm sent 30-foot ocean waves into Bush's own Kenny Bunkport, Maine home. <clears throat> Some highly significant. You can read, according to various reports, nine out of the ten costliest insurance events in U.S. history have followed dramatic calls by United States officials for Israel to make land concessions in bid for peace. And I'm telling you, you read those reports and the claims, and they are quite captivating. But you can also read of Muslim clerics claiming that Hurricane Sandy in 2012 was God's judgment on America for allowing anti-Muhammad videos. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, you could listen to people claim to know for certain that the, the storm attacked New Orleans because of the voodoo and the sexual license that that city is known for, and it is known for that. You could also listen to the opinion that Katrina, on the other hand, was God's judgment on America for invading Iraq. And so the 
theories go on and on. If, if we acknowledge that God does judge nations for sin, should we be prepared to embrace these attempts to trace 9-11 and other disasters like them to particular national sin or patterns of sin? Well, in answer to that question, one source of caution is the entire book of Job. The whole book is a refutation of the idea that you can always connect disaster to sin. You remember that Job's three friends did that. They lectured on and on and on about the justice of God, about sin, about its consequences, and in doing so, they said a lot of right things that ring true. But they were dead wrong in the application of those things to Job, and in the end, God told them so. Another source of caution about connecting particular disasters to particular sins, or even a pattern of sins. Another source of caution is an incident in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 9, the disciples encountered a man that was born blind, and they questioned as if it's got to be one or the other. They just said to Jesus, you know, who... Whose sin is at fault here? Is it the man or his parents that he's born blind? And Jesus' answer was neither. That tragedy of blindness is not the result of anyone's sin in that case. The experience of the prophet Habakkuk, I think, is another significant caution. Habakkuk was exasperated with the sin that was all around him in Judah. And wickedness, violence, they just seemed to... Uh, be getting worse and worse, unchecked. And at some point, at some point, Habakkuk, and it actually is described as a complaint. At some point, Habakkuk uttered a complaint to God, why don't you do something? Do you not know what people are doing? These are people that go by your name. And, and the violence and the wickedness is just increasing. Where are you? Why are you letting people get away with it? And God answered, to Habakkuk, I'm going to do something that you won't believe if I tell you. And then he went on to tell him that what he was going to do was he was going to judge those people, and he was going to judge them by bringing the Babylonians in to punish them. And then Habakkuk was like, I don't believe you. How can you do that? The Babylonians are even worse. How do you judge your people sinning by bringing people that, you know, are barbarians and wicked and wretched? And all of these types, uh, all these texts that caution us against making what seem to be airtight interpretations of current events, connecting particular disasters to particular sins, all of those, they all caution us about that. They, they caution us to not think that we've got God and his administration of justice and judgment all figured out. That's what they caution us to do. And so I want to ask tonight, where are we left then in the combination of these two truths? And if somehow middle of the week your mind's starting to wander or your body's starting to fade. <laughs> Here's the two truths again. In combination with these two truths, one is God does judge nations for sin. Secondly, we're cautioned, though, about connecting disaster with particular sin. 
So you say, where does that leave us? Does it just leave us like, oh, well, so it happened, it's going to keep happening, and I can't make any sense of it. Well, this is where I want to bring in Luke 13 tonight. I want us to see Jesus answer um, to those that brought to his attention, you know, some that died wrongfully and perhaps even natural catastrophe. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. They were present at that season, some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate had slaughtered apparently a number of Galileans, Shocking display of brutality. <clears throat> and these people are bringing up to Jesus. I mean, what do you say about that kind of situation in those people? Jesus, in verse 2, answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things? That tended to be a mindset of that day. Verse 3, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or, he goes on to address another situation they must have known about, those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell. Perhaps that tower came down because of a tornado. Maybe it was an earthquake. It shook it. Some kind of natural catastrophe. A tower falls and 18 die and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? And the answer is the same. I tell you, no, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now let me give you three observations quickly tonight from this text, and it is, first of all, this. Jesus doesn't assume that those who died in either of those tragedies didn't deserve their fate. All right? I think, we do, I think we need to note that. He doesn't assume that they did not deserve that fate. So he doesn't, when they say, hey, those guys that died under <coughs> Pilate, and, you know, I mean, they're bringing their sacrifices in, and he mingled their blood with them, he just slaughtered them like animals. He didn't say, oh, that's so horrible. Pilate is, was so out of line. It's just atrocious, terrorist brutality. He didn't say that. He didn't even say about the, you know, the tower and the 18 that, that fell, <coughs> and the tower fell and they died. He didn't say, he didn't express you know, words of shock. And, and those innocent people, how can innocent people die like that? He didn't say anything like that. And sometimes that's the way we do think of it, don't we? I'm, I'm commenting on that because we do think, how could God let innocent people like that die? Jesus didn't say it that way. He didn't say Pilate was incredibly wicked and those people were innocent. So he didn't, uh, his words did not assume that, they, that when they died in tragedy that they didn't deserve their fate. Now, he, did not, he also did not come right out and say they got what they deserved, did he? But he did say this, they perished, and he just immediately said, and you're going to perish too unless you repent of your sin. So Jesus does do this. He does assume that death in one way or another is the result of what? It is the result of sin, and therefore death is what? It is deserved. That's the consistent 
witness of the entirety of the scripture. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have what? For that all have sinned. So that's the first observation. The first observation is that he didn't, um, he didn't say these people that died tragic deaths didn't deserve their fate. Secondly, he does insist <coughs> that tragic death is not evidence that those who died that way are more wicked than the ones who escaped. Let me say that again. He, he does insist that those who died tragically are not more wicked than those who escaped, that we shouldn't make that connection. That's what was brought up. <clears throat> Did you notice these people that died and, and, and Pilate slaughtered them? Maybe they deserved that. Were they more wicked than others? And Jesus just cuts right, hey, do you think that they, that happened to them because they were sinners worse than you? Do you think that, that aha, <clears throat> those people that died in that tower... I mean, God must have been going after them for their voodoo, their sexual license, whatever it may be. He doesn't go there. If all deserve to die because of sin, then certainly the fate of those uh, was no more than they deserve, but it doesn't mean that they deserve less. And, and the implication is this. He's trying to say to the men who are, are asking the questions, listen, the implication is you're not morally superior it's the mercy of God that you're alive. You're not, you're not, no one should assume moral superiority on account of the fact that they've escaped the tragedy and even the death. <clears throat> what, do you, what do you would say to all of us that observe any of that is we all ought to remember it's of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. They didn't die because they were more wicked. The fact that you're alive is the mercy of God to you. Because we all deserve it. And then thirdly, is this. Jesus commented on human tragedy, not in a way to, that entertained the mysteries, but he commented on human tragedy in a way that called to repentance. Except ye <coughs> perish, except ye repent, ye shall all what? Likewise perish. That was the issue. He used disaster as a megaphone of sorts, as the platform to call attention to our guilt, our just desert of judgment, if we will not repent. It's a little off topic, I know, right now, but I would add this. We, we tend to think that we have a right to blessing. We have a right to prosperity. I remember the last time Mark Shepard was here and I was asking him some questions about the refugee camps and ministry and then um, various things like that. And somehow in the discussion, he just said to me, he said, we deny health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But he said, I think we all really wish that that was true. (laughs) We'd like to think (coughs) that if I... You know, that somehow I could do enough that I can somehow get on this morally superior end of things where I can expect it all to be great. And we think that tragedy is pretty close to being unfair and giving me just cause for calling into question, you know, God's goodness or power. And Jesus just doesn't go there in the discussion. 
<clears throat> he doesn't interpret it that way. What he says is blessing in any fashion is undeserved mercy, and disaster really in any fashion is a call for humbling, and in the words of the text, it's a call for repentance. Now, I don't think we'd have <clears throat> the same type of difficulty that we have today if we were exposed to preaching that I could even say it this way, that our country was founded on, or that God used at least to bless our country. The most famous sermon of American history was preached by Jonathan Edwards. It wasn't the only time he preached it, but July 8, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. (coughs) He gave that sermon the title, Sinners in the Hands of a What Kind of God? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. His text was Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, Their foot shall slide in due time. And Edwards portrayed the sinner as walking on a slippery place where the next step may be his fall right into hell. He portrayed the sinner as a spider, some kind of loathsome insect that is just hanging over the fire by a a thin thread. He portrayed the wrath of God against sin as great waters that have been dammed up for the present. They're increasing more and more and rising higher and higher, ready to be unleashed at a moment. He portrayed God's wrath as a bow that was already bent, the string pulled back and the arrow on the strings ready to be launched right into the sinner's heart. And that all of those things, your foot slipping into hell, that spider that's hanging by a thread, your life hanging by a thread, the bow and the arrow ready to be launched, all of those restrained only by the undeserved mercy of God. But their foot shall slip in due time. And he went on to preach about You don't know that this may be your last breath. This may be your last heartbeat. He preached another sermon, the same time frame, that was entitled, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. And when he got to the applicational section of that sermon, I'm going to quote some of it. He said, look over your past life, what light you have had. And yet, how you have behaved yourself. What have those many days and nights you have lived been filled up with? What has God kept your breath and your nostrils for, given you meat and drink, that you have spent your life and strength supported by them in opposing God and rebellion against Him? How many sorts of wickedness have you been guilty of? Now, just think about that. He's, I mean, He's unloading now. God's given you breath, he's given you a heart that beats, he's given you food and drink, he's given you rest, and he's woken you up, and he's done it day after day after day, and you've taken it, and you've filled up your life doing your own pursuits in rebellion against God. Great wickedness. What would the wickedness be? He went on and listed it. Here's the great wickedness. Little regard to the scriptures. To the word preached. To the Lord's day, little regard for family worship, 
wicked carriage or attitudes towards your parents. Revenge and malice towards your neighbors. Covetousness, pride, sensuality, (coughs) lying, lack of love to God, lack of thankfulness are all of His abundant gifts. Lack of spiritual nurturing of your children. And worst of all, Edward suggests, was presuming on God's mercy. The justice of God in the damnation of sinful parents that won't nurture their children in the things of the Lord. That's the way he preached. The justice of God in the damnation of people who regard lightly the opportunity to hear the word preached. That's what he he preached. And I'm just scratching the surface. The emphasis of that sermon went on for 29 pages in one sermon. Now, we don't hear often that kind of preaching today, and because we don't, I do fear that we underestimate, I fear that I underestimate the offensiveness of our sin. I fear we underestimate the justice of God's wrath. And I fear that in doing so, we we actually underestimate our need of Christ. I am concerned that so many, frankly, so many growing up in our churches, I'm, I, I'm thankful for Maranatha Baptist University. I'm thankful for sister schools <clears throat> that would be represented here by our, our church family. But I fear that so many have grown up out of our churches and gone to our schools and they're now in our colleges and they really have very little clue what they even ask God to save them from. Our debt before God is insurmountable. And if he collected today, if he collected five years from now, he collects 20 years from now, there's no way you or I could pay off my debt. All those works still tainted by my sinful condition. But, brethren, that being said, This is not a matter of merely a cold, calculated business debt, but a personal God that is highly offended and provoked to wrath, who says, like you heat things up, metals, so that you can work with, I'm telling you, I'm going to put you in the pot and I'm going to blow my fire on you, and it's going, to, it's going to consume you. It sounds like he's upset. <clears throat> Listen, our sin is not just a debt. It's a high offense against God personally. And the person and work of Jesus is the one solution to both my guilt and the debt I've incurred, and God's wrath. And that's why, listen, that's why in the face of this kind of preaching in the past, people weren't told, pray a prayer. People were told, fly to Christ. Run to Christ. Go with everything in you to Christ, because in Christ is the only place that you find refuge and safety. You're in deep danger. Run. 
Edwards concluded his own message. I will finish what I have to say with a caution not to use the doctrine to discouragement. For though it would be righteous in God forever to cast you off and destroy you, yet it would also be just in God to save you in and through Christ, who's made complete satisfaction for sin. I'm confident we think so little of Christ because we think so little of our sin. And disaster like 9-11, I don't mean to be trite about this, but disaster like that with some of its hell-like conditions. And there, are, there were the, the continual burning and the screams and the darkness and the tragedy is hell-like. Disaster like that with some of its hell-like conditions is at a minimum a call for me to consider the justice of God if he would just wipe me out. Because how dare I take the life that he's given and all the resources that he's given and just continue to spend them for myself. And it's a call for me to repent of my sin with a trembling brokenness. And at the same time, it's an invitation for me to come to Christ and find in him deliverance and safety and a position of eternal favor with God. And if you're here today, and I understand the, the audience tonight, but if you're here today and you're one of our children, you're one of our adults, and you just have kind of thought, yeah, I, don't, I want to make sure I get out of the unsaved category into the saved, but you've never known what it is to really trembling over the offensiveness of your sin and recognize the great danger that you are in, I mean, a footstep away from hell, hanging by a thread, the last heartbeat away from hell. Listen, if you've never come to grips with that, you ought to fly to Christ today with a trembling brokenness. And if you're here and just say, thank God by his grace, he's done that. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears what relieved as it pointed to Christ. If you're here today and, <clears throat> and you can say by God's grace, that has been true of me, then brethren, listen, let us not for a day, for an hour, take lightly our position in Christ and the work of Christ. Oh, wretched man that I am, that's still me in my flesh. Where can deliverance be found? Who shall save me from the body of this death? I thank God through what? Through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's my whole identity. That is my whole identity. It's that I'm a wretched man who needs deliverance, and the deliverance from start to finish is found in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to give a few minutes here of opportunity for you to talk to God personally. And I'm not trying to manufacture uh, a, a conviction, a finger-pointing that isn't, 
the work of the Spirit of God. And frankly, if you're here tonight and there's nothing particular that he's dealing with you about, then at a minimum, I trust you'll take this time to just say, I'm only a sinner saved by grace, and I thank you for your grace. Thank you for teaching me sin, bringing me to fear it, and turning me from it to run to Christ. But maybe there's, maybe there are sins, maybe there are attitudes, patterns. Or maybe there's somebody that just says, my whole, my whole Christian identity is this kind of, I agreed to something because it made more sense and who wouldn't. And with a trembling brokenness, you can in your heart fly to Christ right now. And you must. Today is the day of salvation. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the whole counsel of your word. We certainly haven't ransacked it tonight, and yet we've seen tonight various biblical themes that complement each other, that must go together. You do judge nations for sins. We need to be cautioned about drawing particular, drawing lines between particular sins and particular disasters. But Lord, we need to also allow the destruction that comes in disasters that is ultimately rooted in sin to be a platform to call us to consider our own ways and to, yes, repent about our own sin. We thank you also for, even in a brief way, to be pointed to Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray that you, you would do a work in us. <coughs> but I pray beyond us that you would do a work in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our families and in our country. And Lord, give us some opportunity to proclaim truth. We know, we know that if we were to even get a more public hearing, even for the emphasis of truth like this, we would just be scorned in, in nearly every public sphere of our country. We understand where we are as a people. We understand we may pay some price. But Lord, we pray that you would nevertheless still give us 
here and there at least, opportunities to reach individuals. We pray that you would take our words and not let them be um, just the words that a man could speak that fall on deaf ears. But Lord, we pray that you would allow us to, as we give your words, let them be empowered by your spirit. And may they bring some sobriety and wholesome fear that causes men and women and boys and girls with trembling to take hold of Christ. We ask that you would do it in the rest of this week and in the weeks to come. The Lord, give us even more of that sense of your presence moving in our midst as we gather together, even this coming Lord's Day. We thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.